Amen. Amen. As we begin a new series this morning, I wanted to take a couple minutes to share some of my own coronavirus testimony this morning. I believe that 2020 will forevermore be known as the year of the coronavirus. I've never seen anything like this, and it has, it has impacted my life and our lives in so many different ways. One of those ways is spiritually. It definitely has had an impact on the spiritual lives of the people of God and, and the world in general, I believe. People are, are dealing with issues spiritually and emotionally that um, maybe we haven't had to deal with before. We're asking questions, hard questions, that maybe we haven't had to answer before. And that's true of me as well. My coronavirus testimony will begin with the struggle back in March when the questions about whether or not we could continue to operate and function normally as a church were on the table and kind of, it was kind of consuming for me back then and we praying through that and seeking God's face. And, and I have to tell you that when the decision was made to close our doors to physical gatherings, it took a lot out of me. That hurt my heart. I understood the reasoning for it. I did not at all disagree with the importance in that, in that time to social distance, to stop the gatherings. But it didn't make it any easier. I considered something that I had poured my entire adult life into and watched how easily it was to shut the door. And that troubled me. But as a leader, I, I sought to look for the positives in all things, and I tried to be an encourager to you and to us, and to, to remain hopeful, diligent. We can do this. You heard me say that many times. We're still the church. It's going to be okay. I began to tell myself that it was a, it was a time of reboot, that it was good for us to step aside for a while, that God was going to do something, and, and as we came back, we would come back stronger and more in tune and more in touch with God and what He was doing. And then days turned into weeks, and weeks turned into months. And I realized that I had grossly underestimated how difficult it was to lead you from a distance. To feed you from a distance. And so I was overjoyed 
on June the 7th when we came back into this room together. And I was reminded of how important the gathering together of God's people really is. I was reminded that God is still on his throne and he is still working. And yet even since that time, I realized that there's been some discouragement and some heaviness in me because it's certainly not what it used to be. And in my opinion, it's not what it ought to be. And I'm reading articles, listening to professionals speak about where we are right now. I read an article just a couple weeks ago from George Barna that said that one-third of the active church members who were active before coronavirus are still actively and emotionally engaged in their church. Another third are partially and casually engaged in their church, but are also connecting with other ministries during this time. And a full third are not connected to anything or anyone spiritually at this time. And that, that hurts my heart. And I began to notice that not only was I as, as a leader in this kind of spiritual defunct, <laughs> asking those hard questions and wondering when all this was going to end, I realized that many, if not most, of the children of God are there as well in a lot of ways. It feels as though our very foundations are shaken and we're not sure where to turn from here. But my testimony continues like this. My heart has made a turn. I have heard a fresh word. I am on a mission. Now, I wish I could tell you that that fresh word was an event, it, you know, and I heard an audible voice. I did not. It's been more processed than event. But over the last uh, Several weeks, maybe a month or so, God has been speaking directly to my heart in some, some very subversive ways, but also in some very overt ways. I've been challenged. I've been convicted. And I've heard a fresh word. And I want you to know that. And I stand excited to be able to, to share with you the turn that is happening in my heart and in my spirit. For you see, I'm convinced, and this is what God has been sharing with me, I am convinced that if, in fact, this culture is going to get out of this spiritual and emotional defunct in which we find ourselves, then it is going to be the children of God's responsibility to lead them out. I think we have to go first. I think we have to be the first ones to 
recognize and understand again the glory of our God. And we have to be the ones that rise above the circumstances in which we live in order to again pronounce and proclaim a glory of God that is full of hope and peace and joy and fulfillment. These things are our birthright, church, as the children of God. And the world, the circumstances of the world cannot take them away. And we need to be ready to rise up as God's people with good news, with hope, with peace and fulfillment, and lead the way for this culture that is living in such darkness. And then God said something else to me. He said, Eric, if the children of God are going to rise up and lead this culture out of this spiritual darkness, then the pastors and the leaders of God's churches are going to have to rise up first and lead those churches and lead the children of God to a place where they can rise up. And that is my mission. That is the vision that I have right now in this particular moment of my ministry. And I want you to pray for me. That I would understand how to lead the people of God during this time. To do what we already know how to do. To be who we already are. To claim the birthright that has already been given to us as the children of Almighty God. And to proclaim the glory of our God. You see, God has said, Eric, that God is still God. He has said, Eric, that the good news is still good. The hope of glory is still the hope. The, the blessed assurance is still blessed. None of that has changed. And you and I are called of God to be light in a dark place. Yes, there's some darkness around us. We see it physical, emotional, financial, and spiritual. It's around us. But our God rules and reigns. And it's time for you and I to understand the restoration that comes from the power of God. And so today I want to begin thinking together about what it means to be restored. And I'm ready. I hope you are. I'm ready. I'm ready for an outpouring of God. I believe that the table is set for God to do an incredible thing. And I'm ready for it. And I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 7. Because today I want to show to you from Scripture a pattern of God's restoration. Okay? We're not the first generation... To be in a difficult place. Would you agree? We're not the first generation of the children of God to find themselves in a difficult place. What we find particularly through scripture, Genesis to Revelation, is we find time and time again where the people of God, sometimes because of their own waywardness and sometimes just because of the situations and circumstances of the world around us, but they have found themselves in some very difficult and dark places where they found themselves emotionally 
distraught, when they found themselves spiritually distraught, when they were asking hard questions and they were crying out before God for God to intervene and to do something. And as we have read these stories over and over again in Scripture, we find a particular pattern. And I want to show you that pattern this morning. Because the questions are, how are we going to get out of this? Where are we going to go from here? What is God going to do next? And I think we find some very clear answers to those questions in scriptures. And over and over again, we can see the pattern that God uses when he begins that great miraculous work of restoration among his people. And we're going to find a story in 2 Kings chapter 7 as we look for this particular pattern. Now, I want to give you a little bit of a background on chapter 7. You go back for the previous few chapters and you're going to find that the people of God are in some very dire straits. The Israelites are at war with the Syrians in general and the Arameans in, in particular. The Arameans have made alliances with the Syrians and the Aramean king has set out against the Israelite king and there is a great battle that has been going on. The king of Israel, let's learn something about him. His name is Joram. And if you'll go back to 2 Kings chapter 3, you go back a few chapters to chapter 3, it's important that we read a little something of his resume in chapter 3. For here he says, Joram, son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria during the 18th year of Judah's king Jehoshaphat, and he reigned for 12 years. Watch this next verse. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. But not like his father and mother, for he removed the sacred pillar of Baal his father had made. Nevertheless, Joram clung to the sins that Jeroboam son of Nabat had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. Now that's his resume. Now I think as we continue to read from this introduction, we can assume that the children of God are getting ready to go through some difficult times. Because the king, the leadership, the government had failed to acknowledge the power, the majesty, the glory, and the authority of God. And so, in leading the people from this vantage point, King Joram had led his people into a place of rebellion against God. And now, the, 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 the people of Israel were struggling because of that rebellion. And, and the enemies of God's people had come down against them. And there had been a great war that had lasted for many months. And what had happened is that the king of Israel, Joram, had retreated into a city called Samaria. Now, you must assume something about this city. If the king himself has found refuge in this city, we can assume that it's a pretty great city. Wouldn't you assume that? It was a walled, fortified city. And the king found refuge there. 
Not only that, but it would have had enough provisions to support the king and all of the king's people. So it was a modern, a prosperous, a, a wealthy city at some time in its history. So much so that when it was time for the king to retreat, he ran to Samaria. They shut the gates of the city and thought they could just wait it out. Now, the king of Aram had a different strategy. He decided that instead of attacking this walled city of Syria, he would simply station his vast armies around the city and choke them out. Nothing was to go in and nothing was to get out. You might say that Syria had been quarantined. And they waited. And the longer they waited, the worse things became. Listen to 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24. We'll tell you how bad this had gotten. Sometime later, King Ben-Hadad of Aram brought all his military units together and marched up to besiege Syria. So there was a great famine in Samaria. And they continued the siege against it until a donkey's head sold for 80 silver shekels and a cup of dove's dung sold for five silver shekels. Later on in this passage, it tells us that they had even turned to cannibalism in this time of starvation and drought. The head of a donkey. This is talking about for food. For 80 silver shekels. And that was what the rich people got. You know what the poor people got? For five silver shekels? Does dung. Where they would pick through it and try to find the pieces of grain and seed that had not digested. We're talking poverty, like most of us in this room, thank God, have never seen. Things were pretty bad, would you agree? All right. So now, I think we've set the stage. The people of God are in a position where they need to be restored. God, you're going to have to do something here. We can't do this much longer. We've taken all of this that we can take. We've done all that we can do. We can't depend on our government. The government's corrupt. The king himself is corrupt. We can't depend on, on the, the agencies and institutions because they're in this with us. They're just as broken and just as discouraged and just as hungry as we are. God, God you're going to have to do something. And here's where we see a pattern of God's intervention in restoring his people watch carefully and i'm going to tell you the first thing that happened and it's the first thing that always happens when god intervenes is that he places upon someone's heart a new message a new message of deliverance let's go to, let's go to chapter 7 verse 1 
Listen to this new message. Elisha, that's the prophet of God, replied, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. So two times in his introduction, he says, This is not my word. This is God's word. I've got a new word from the Lord. The Lord is getting ready to speak into this crisis. And so God inspires his man. He inspires his messenger to bring a new message of deliverance. And here's what it says. About this time tomorrow at the gate of Samaria, six quarts of fine meal will sell for a shekel. And 12 quarts of barley will sell for a shekel. I'm going to tell you, that's a long way from from five shekels for a, a cup of dove's dung, wouldn't you say? Now here's what happened. God inspired his man to proclaim his glory. I want to say that again. The man of God proclaimed the glory of God to the people of God. That is the first step of God's restoration among his people from Genesis to Revelation. Every time we see God getting ready to do a good work, the first thing he always does is inspire one of his followers to reveal this work that's on its way. To reveal his glory to the people. Let's go back to the children of Israel who were caught up in their time of captivity in Egypt. Do you remember that story? In Exodus, in the first part of Exodus, God goes to Moses and said, I want you to set my people free. I'm going to deliver my people. You go down and talk to Pharaoh. But as we continue to read, we realize that that Moses didn't go straight to Pharaoh. The first place he went was to the children of God. And he called the elders and the leaders together. And he said, pack your things because God is getting ready to show himself in a mighty way. God is getting ready to do something. He is going to lead us out of this place. And the Bible says, and they believed and they began to worship because they were hungry for that fresh word from the Lord. We can fast forward into the, into the, the Gospels of the New Testament And we realized that it had been some 400 years since the people of God had received a word from God. And you know, there was a lot of despondency and a lot of complacency and a lot of of darkness, spiritual darkness and emotional darkness. And God was getting ready to show his glory through Jesus, but he didn't begin with Jesus. He began with an itinerant missionary called John the Baptist. And he touched this man of God to proclaim the glory of God. And it was John the Baptist who said, prepare you the way of the Lord. God is getting ready to do something great. And then he looked up and saw Jesus one day and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I'm done. I'm out of here. We see the man of God proclaiming the glory of God. And I want to make a challenge this morning. I want to make a challenge this morning to all the pastors who might hear of this, to all of the the church leaders, our elders, our deacons, teachers, all of you who are in a place of spiritual authority in anyone's life. I want to speak to every leader of every home. And I want to challenge you to begin today giving those that you have some influence over a fresh word from the Lord. 
a word of hope, a word that reminds them day in and day out of the glory of our God. We have been inundated with the bad news. We need to remind our people that God is still God, the gospel is still good news, and that there is the hope of glory, and that nothing is wrong with the kingdom of God, that he is in charge, and we are his children, and we have a birthright as the children of God. I challenge you to stand up. I have been challenged. And I challenge you to stand up with what is good about the glory of our God. Listen to what he said in verse 2. He said, by this time tomorrow. By this time tomorrow. Down in the next verse, it says that, that, that one of the king's officers challenged that. And he said, no way this can happen by tomorrow. No way. Let's read on. It says, then the captain, verse 2, then the captain, the king's right-hand man, responded to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord were to make windows in heaven, could this really happen? Could it really happen? By tomorrow? Can it really happen? Elisha didn't come along and say, Okay, everybody calm down, because one of these days it's all going to be all right. Just hang in there. It's going to be okay one of these days. People didn't want to hear one of these days. People didn't have too many of these days left and they knew it. I mean, they had already reduced themselves to eating dung from a dove. They didn't, it wasn't good news to them for somebody to say, hang on, you're just going to have to do this for a couple more weeks or a couple more months. There's no good news in that. Elijah stood up and said, by this time tomorrow, so I'm going to go out on another limb and I'm going to say to you as your pastor, there is a drought in the land. There is a spiritual drought in the land. There is a drought of peace that passes understanding. There is a drought of the hope of glory through, through God Almighty and through our relationship with Jesus Christ. There is a drought of joy and the joy of the Lord has been stolen from us. It has been taken from us. And I want to say to you on the authority of God's word by this time tomorrow, nay, by later on today, you can be restored. And you again can feast on what God has already made available to you. We don't have to wait on that any longer. Oh, and I, and I love the wording of this passage. I love what he said about by this time tomorrow. He said the fine grain. Did you get that? I love that word fine. I love that word fine here. He says, not only are you going to be fed by this time tomorrow, you're going to be fed on the good stuff. Church, I want to tell you, as the children of God, you can feed on the good stuff. On the good stuff. No, I don't have any idea what's going to happen physically with this whole coronavirus thing. I don't have any idea what's going to happen socially when we see all of the social discord and disarray in our culture. I don't have any idea what's going to happen financially. I don't know. I don't have any of those answers. But I do know this. You and I are children of the Most High God, and we know that He is who He claims to be, and He is the one who can handle us. He's got this. He's got this. And his promises are true. It was a new message that was delivered where the man of God proclaimed the glory of God. Let's read on. Look at verse 3 and 4. 
For here we find once the new message is delivered, then a new mindset is adopted. Somebody had to make their mind up to do something. Up until this time, there had been a mindset of discouragement. They weighed their odds. They, they looked out at the armies of the Arameans and realized we can't pass through. They're not letting anything in, so we are doomed. Why even try? And here's what's happened. Look at verse 3. Then it says, four men with a skin disease. Most, most Bibles interpret that as leprosy. Four lepers were at the entrance of the gate. And they said to each other, why just sit here until we die? Hmm. You know where that's going, don't you? Why just sit here until we die? If we say, let's go into the city, we will die there because the famine is in the city. But if we sit here, we will also die. So now, come on, let's go into the Aramean camp. There's a, there's a risk. If they let us live, we will live. If they kill us, we will die. Can you imagine that scene with me for a couple minutes? I mean, I just love these guys. Now, the city is in famished. Kind of dying from within. They're not even allowed to go in there. Because of their leprosy, they're required to sit outside the gate. Now, you've got to understand something. A leper during this particular time was an outcast. And when they ate, they ate the scraps from the normal people's table. So I think the point here is, these four guys represent the hungriest of the hungry. The brokenest of the broken. The saddest of the sad. The, the most depressed of the depressed. You would be hard pressed to find anyone in or around Samaria that's got it worse than these guys. And so they're sitting there, and one of them brings up this very important question. Guys, why are we just going to sit here and die? Now, my guess, and I read one good commentator that said, that might have been the last four surviving members of a leper's colony that would have been somewhere around that village. And all of the others had already passed. And they knew their fate. And they knew it was close. And so they asked the question, are we just going to sit here until we just die? And something began to stir in them. There was something in their mind that began to think differently. They began to move from hopeless to hopeful. Maybe there's something we can do. 
they begin to move from reactive to proactive. If we sit here and react to the circumstances around us, we're going to die. But maybe we can find something to do. The thought processes went from nothing to something. And they realized that sitting there doing nothing, just waiting it out, was no longer a good option. So they began to weigh their options. And I love their optimism here. They clearly articulate four choices. Did you notice that? They got four choices and three of them are bad. Choice number one, we sit here and we... Number two, we go into the city and we... Number three, we go into our, our, our Aramean camp. They don't feed us and we... And number four, they take care of us and we live. Isn't that right? Four choices, and three of them are bad. We've been hearing a lot about the percentages lately, haven't we? I'd say these guys have about a 25% survival rate, given their choices. But that's better than nothing. And let me just share this, because this is kind of the end of the story. I'm going to skip. With God, with God, 25% is a feast, guys. With God, we don't, need, we don't even need 1% with God. Because God is able to do great and mighty things. So as you read on in the story, here's what happens. They, they decided, we're going to do something instead of nothing. So they got up and decided they were going to walk right into the enemy's camp. And when they got there, there was nobody home. They were gone. Every single soldier was gone. No one was there. Not only that. But they left in such a hurry that they forgot to take all of their stuff. The tents were still standing. The food was still laid out. I, I could just imagine there were probably some fires burning with, with some roast beef on, on the fire still cooking because they left so fast. And so they did what any starving leper would do after months of sitting outside the city gate, eating leftover dove dung. They feasted for the next few hours. It says they just filled themselves full. And then they went into the tents and they started getting the spoils. They started getting the gold and the silver. I can just see that they're kind of having this crazed kind of attitude that says, hot dog, we have been set free. Look, we can eat. We can celebrate now. And they were just kind of caught up into that as any of us would. You see, they were having their own personal revival. And I'm going to tell you that when God touches your heart with his glory, go ahead and celebrate that. Go ahead and feast on it. There's nothing wrong with that. Go ahead and sing your hallelujahs and shout your praises because when God touches your heart and he feeds you on that peace that you've been longing for or he feeds you on that hope that you've been looking for or he feeds you on the joy that you haven't experienced in a long, long time, go ahead and celebrate that. It's okay. And they were celebrating. They were enjoying the bounty and the blessing of God. But then... They launched a new ministry. They decided to launch a new ministry. And this is, this is the pattern. You see, it began with a new message being delivered. Then it continued with a new mindset of just a handful of people that was adopted. And, and God took those few faithful and he began to pour out his blessings. And then that few faithful became ministers of the glory of God. Here's what they said. Let's look at verse 9. 
Then they said to each other, we're not doing what is right. Today is a day of good news. Hallelujah. Today is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until morning light, our sin will catch up with us. Let's go tell the king's household. In other words, let's spread this good news. Let's spread this good news. They went back and they told the king. At first, the king didn't believe them. He sent out some spies to check it out. The king said it's a trap. It wasn't a trap. What had happened is that the power of God moved. And those soldiers heard what they assumed was a greater army than they had ever experienced before. They heard the sounds of chariots and horses coming at them. It was just the power of God. And they got up and they fled for their lives. And God gave them, gave his people the spoils. And so then once the king's household heard, they sent the spy, they began to bring the food in. And guess what? They were distributing it at the city gate, so much so, so that it was selling for a shekel for a whole bunch of the fine stuff. And God's glory was being made known. Today is a day of good news, church. I want you to know that. Today is a day of good news. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 and following, I want to read that as I close. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 and following, it says, You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. We can't keep this glory to ourselves. That would be wrong. It's time for a new ministry to be adopted and to be launched as the people of God determine that not only are we going to seek to enjoy and benefit again from the good news, but it's a good news that needs to be shared with the people around us. And we need to find new and creative ways to share this good news with those people around us so that not only can we be lifted up, but we can lead others to that place of knowing and experiencing and enjoying the glory of God. Check me out. Go through scripture. See if you don't see this pattern over and over and over again. Where it begins with a new message. God has heard your prayers and he's going to deliver you. It continues with a new mindset. Somebody has to believe that and has to take that first step. And then new ministries are launched. As we determine that what God has done for us, he will do for others. And our call is to let our light, the light of God's glory, shine for others around us. Let's stand together, please. Jason is going to lead us in a time of invitation and response. The invitation is for whosoever will. You may come, the altars will be open. But I want to send out this challenge. And the challenge is, church, will you, will you walk with me into that better place emotionally, spiritually? Can we rise up together as the children of God and, and recognize again our birthright, that we share His glory, that we've been offered His peace, His, his joy, His hope, 
we have a reason to be glad in this time of desperation. You join me in that? That's where it starts. It starts with each one of us hearing that new message from the Lord himself that says, I have not forgotten you, I have not forsaken you. And you are my child. And we need to rise up and experience his glory.